you know a spot. But not just a spot. The spot. Actually, with the 2023 Nissan Frontier, you know a bunch of them. But the key to these great spots? Being able to reach them in the first place. Your spot is out there. Find your Frontier in the 2023 Nissan Frontier with standard 310 horsepower, advanced tech, and 281 pound-feet of torque. AT&T Connects and Ode to Podcasts. Connect the alarm. Change the podcast you stream. Connect the snooze. Ten more minutes to dream. Connect the shower. Lather up with the news, sports talk, comedians, or movie reviews. Connect with that three-hour philosophy show. Change the drive into work. In traffic, so slow. Connect the dishes to voices that glow. Thank you to the geniuses of spoken audio. Connect the stories, change your perspective. Connecting changes everything. AT&T. Welcome to Hello Somebody, a production of the Black Effect Podcast Network and iHeartMedia, where we rage against the machine, where we raise our voices against injustice and stand up for justice, where we embrace hope and joy with an optimism for a brighter, more just future. Each week, I'll be dropping knowledge, whether it's a solo episode from me or a hearty discussion with esteemed guests doing great things in spaces and places of politics, entertainment, social justice, and beyond. We get real, baby. I mean, really real. We get honest. We get up close and personal for you. Yes, you. Because everybody is somebody. Before we begin, I want to give a special shout out to my team. Thank you, Sim. Tiffany, Sam, and the team over at Good Juju Studios, Erica England, Pepper Chambers, the hot one, and my social media team. Hello, somebody. Welcome back. If you are tuning in for the first time, welcome to the family. And if you are a longstanding listener of Hello, Somebody, I'm so glad you are back here with me yet again. Now, you know, I get excited every single week and every single week I say I got the best, the best, the best, the best. And this week is absolutely no exception. You know how we roll. I'm going to walk you through this before I introduce my phenomenal guest. Yes, plural. I got two people rolling with me today, which we don't usually do, but I'm glad we're doing it today. You're not going to want to miss this. So I need you to call some friends and some frenemies and tell them to go ahead on and tune in to Hello Somebody. So the power of social media, and I know many of us use social media, maybe sometimes to our chagrin, but that's another show. The power of social media, cell phones and TV have played and will continue to play a significant role in exposing truth, sometimes half-truths and mistruths, but we're going to just stick with truth right now. Like the brutal and unjust treatment of black and brown communities have suffered historically, we really are blessed in the 21st century to have more opportunities through technology to really show what is happening in the world. And even with all the technology, with our smartphones, we still do not see 
nor do we know it all. But we know that black and brown communities have suffered historically at the hands of some law enforcement. And we're talking about systemic failure, intentional systems of oppression. But it's also given us a sense of connection to what is happening in our country and in our communities, sometimes in real time, sometimes it's delayed. But thank God for this technology so we can find out the camera does not lie and basically giving us a new kind of voice. With one swipe up on your smartphone, we can now fight for each other, advocate for change around the world and in our communities. And we can see any injustices. We can also see justice from time to time. Unbiased journalism, smartphones and going live has put an indictment on the public and those who lead this country. Everybody is on notice and here to enlighten us about how media has shaped and continues to shape the narrative on racial justice is the one and only Dr. Mark Lamont Hill and award-winning journalist Todd Brewster, the authors of the newly released book, Seen and Unseen. And let me quote something here, quote, Hill and Brewster incisively explore how the present moment connects to the history of race in America, as well as what makes today different from previous civil rights moments. Seen and Unseen provides the necessary tools to learn from our current moment and push the social justice movement further in quote. Oh my God, Doc and Mr. Brewster, it's so wonderful to have you here to talk about this book. I'm glad that I am among the first to interview you about your wonderful book. Y'all got to get it, get it, get it hot off the presses. You must get it, baby, seen and unseen. And so for listeners who might not necessarily know you both, kind of your, your record and reputation, Doc, you have been rocking and speaking a certain type of truth to power for a very long time. And you host and uh, some shows and have hosted many shows. You've been on many a national TV uh, in, in the classroom. You own a, a, a bookstore, which I did not know. That was new information for me. Yes, Uncle Bobby's Coffee and Books. Come on, Uncle Bobby's. Uncle Bobby. So when I get to Philly, I need to stop by Uncle Bobby's Coffee and Books. Books. I must absolutely do that. And then we have Mr. Todd Brewster, who is a veteran journalist and historians. I love me a historian who has worked as an editor for Time and Life and as a senior producer for ABC News. Oh, my God. You've done so much in your life and you still got many more miles to go. But I don't own a bookstore. I don't but own you don't own a bookstore. <laughs> me either. I, when I grow up. I want to be like Dr. Lamont Hill. The first question I want to ask is how did you two connect and why this topic? So, you know, it's funny. I've known Todd for a while now, about eight years. And we first connected right after everything went down in Ferguson. Right. Yeah. I was trying to figure out what was going on in Ferguson, trying to make sense of it for a book I was writing and my current agent said, I know a guy, represent a guy who's brilliant. You two should meet and just talk. And so I, Todd and I sat down and we had a great conversation and he gave me some perspective on how to think about history. And he ended up writing the foreword to Nobody, which was a beautiful, beautiful foreword. And I said, you know, I love the way this guy writes, but I also love the way he thinks. Yeah. And so I said, at some point we got to do something together. And, you know, Nobody came out in 2016. I did some other projects. He did some other projects. He had a wonderful uh, book called Lincoln's Gamble, 
which again, it's just Todd has a way of writing history that makes it accessible, understandable, but compelling like literature. You know, you feel like you're reading a novel. And so yeah. I, I was like, I need to learn how to do that. I can't do what he does, but I got my own thing and maybe we could work it out together. And yes. so when the pandemic hit, it was like now might be an interesting time for us to think about something together. And after the death of George Floyd, the murder of George Floyd, we said, how can we use our tools together? You know, I spent a lot of time on the ground in Ferguson. I spent a decent amount of time studying uh, the pandemic. And I wrote a book, We Still Here, getting at the pandemic and some of the protests sure. and stuff. I had a view going this way, left to right, if people ain't watching. And I said, but Todd has a deep sense of history. He can help me understand this this way, right? Mm-hmm. And so the idea of technology in media and how the media plays a role in shaping how we talk about and fight for racial justice was something I want to talk about in, in every way possible. Yeah. And so me and Todd put our heads together and said, I think this is the book and this is the time. You know, it's, it's funny because Mark, Mark's saying all that. If you go back to Ferguson, it seemed as though that was the landmark moment. And then we've had so many more landmark moments since then. Oh, yeah. Leading up to what was just a crowning landmark moment. And, and, and then you think to yourself, well, why? And that, of course, that's actually, actually ends up being the first word of the, our book is why, right? I mean, why, was, why did the death of George Floyd change people more than all the successive deaths that have been recorded up to that moment? We felt that it had something to do with the time. It had something to do with the technology. It had something sure. to do with the steps getting there, I think. That's what we explore in here. You know, the, the seen and unseen references. You can see a video over and over again, but when does it have that kind of climactic effect upon you? You know, when does that, when does that one change the world? When is it a video that is seen worldwide? Yes. And stimulate like emotion that is so overpowering that people pour into the streets as they did all over yes. the world, yes. actually. So let's, let's go ahead and start with the why. I mean, can we just take a few minutes and break down the why? I mean, sometimes we, uh, forget why something happened because we often focus more on, I mean, we're very much as a species, I think what is happening in the moment and then we kind of go on to the next and social media probably has a lot to do with why we don't continue to go deeper, but there was a strong why to the murder of George Floyd. So, you know, in seen and unseen, as, as you laid out, Todd, you all talk very deeply yeah. about the why some historical roots that play a major part and how we got here. So how do we think about the why? There's a few reasons. And I think we go into them in, in, in considerable depth in the book. One of them is that it was a kind of crucifixion, really, the, the, the killing of George Floyd. It, it was, we say in the book, you know, a shooting is an instant, but a, a lynching is a performance. Mm. It happens in time. There's something excruciating about the suffering of someone. He cries out for his mother and the biblical connection is that Christ cried out for his father. You know, there was this sense that, that we're watching someone die right before our eyes. And, and I don't know how many people actually watched the full nine minutes, but they watched enough of it to understand that there was an excruciating death happening right in front of them and that there was no denying this. The other killings they didn't have that evidence. And, and, and if you go back through history to look at some of the still photographs in particular and some of the videos that have lasted for us and lasted in the sort of collective memory, there are ones where there's just something that extra to it. There's something, some symbolic quality to it that makes it retain its power. Even though it was a video, it had the quality of a still image, something so primitive about a man's knee in the neck of another man that is symbolic of so much 
in the racial dynamic in this country that there's no denying it. It was, it was starkly there. It's like the Pieta. I mean, it's like something that, you know, you look at it, you go, I, I, it transmits something that is almost wordless, right? Yeah, and, and uh, uh, Dr. Hill, I, I was thinking about, you know, in my teachings of African-American history, when we get to the lynching parts and students' mm-hmm. minds being blown away to see that groups of people would pose the whole community, they were bringing their children. I mean, this was a family affair and a community affair when lynching was happening of the magnitude that it has happened to African-American people over time, especially after Reconstruction. To see that law enforcement, former law enforcement officer, but law enforcement officer, he looked up into the eyes to me of all the people that were filming with an indifference saying, I double dog day, I'm not moving. You know, and that kind of took transported me back to lynchings that happened in the 19th and in the 20th century as well. So, Doc, can you kind of take us through that vibe? Oh, it's not a good vibe either. No, it's, it's not a good vibe, but that's yeah. the point of the lynching. It's how yeah. I said it's a performance. It's, it's, it's a spectacle as well. Yeah. The lynching wasn't just about killing somebody. You could kill somebody in private. The lynching was about the spectacle. It was about saying that we're not beholden even to the pretense of criminal justice and criminal procedure. Sure. We'll break this person out of the jail if we have to, and we will hang them from this tree. Yeah. It was about reinforcing and closing ranks around white power, white supremacy, and anti-black racism. It was about the spectacle of a sadistic kind of investment in killing and destroying the black body. Like, Like you said, it was a pastime. It was. People are taking pictures next to the body. People are taking body parts as souvenirs. Yes. So when this is happening, this is all part of the spectacle. But it's also a message to black folk about what it means to confront or be an affront to state power, to be an affront or or to confront the power of everyday white citizens. It's about the power of white folk to determine whether black folk live or die. It's a reminder of all of those things. It's about the reminder of the, the relative valuelessness of the black body and the black life in that moment particularly post-slavery, right? Because when Black people are owned and Black people are property, you don't destroy your own property. You don't take your rake or you don't take what you use to water crops. You don't destroy that because it's yours. But once Black folk are ostensibly free, unowned, now this stuff matters differently. That's right. But the spectacle is there. And media and technology also was used to distribute the spectacle, right? Think about the postcard that's shared of the lynch. Oh, yeah. And this ties directly to what's happening now, because the lynching of Mike Brown as he laid on Canfield for four and a half hours. Yeah. Right. The public spectacle of watching George Floyd over nine minutes of video footage as he's being put to death. These videos are not just for Darnella Frazier. They're not just for the people yelling at the cop, calling them expletives. It's not just for the store owner up next door. But through social media, now we all witness that spectacle. We all witness the violence. We all witness the pain, the trauma. And part of the why, I think, that we get at, that Todd alluded to, and that you asked about, is that suddenly all of America was forced to witness this, and they couldn't look away. And even if they didn't look at it, they knew that it existed. You couldn't live in America and not know that there was a nine-minute video of George Floyd being killed. You could not know. And, and, and Todd said this, and it really resonated with me when we were talking about the book. He said it had the power of a still photo in a way, because Derek Chauvin's 
knee is on his neck for all that time. So America had to sit there and watch that. And it was almost like a still photo, but it was still real and video. And it was elongated. All of that is happening at the same time. And so in the same way that we looked at Emmett Till's body in August of 55, or look at the cover of Jet magazine, now all of America had to witness this. And that, I think, is why this has become the newest turning point in our fight for racial justice. You made me think about Eric Gardner, too, as you both were talking. Mm-hmm. I mean, he was choked out right there on the sidewalk in New York for loose cigarettes. And it's the mm-hmm. same phenomenon. Mm-hmm. Do you think that people are becoming desensitized to the kind of violence that is plaguing Black bodies? Because we see it so often. Yeah, you know, that's, that's, of course, an ironic danger because one of the messages is that this is not unique. It's common, right? It may not take precisely the form that it took in Minneapolis, but that similar interaction is happening across the country regularly. So when you think, well, if we desensitize to the fact that it happens so often, well, what must be happens so often is the thing we should be sensitized to, right? Right. And I think that one of the things that's important to recognize about the videos is that it's more important that the videos exist than that we watch them. If we watch them, yes, they can be, we can become desensitized to it, or they can be triggering as, as we've talked about before. They can have consequences that I think are, are not the most constructive. The constructive fact is that they happened and they are evidence of what happened. You know, I never watched all nine minutes of the George Floyd video. I watched enough that I knew what was going on, but it's the message that's conveyed by it. When we talk about the spectacle that Mark alluded to before about lynching, lynching is a spectacle because it carries a message. And the message is the dehumanizing of the black race. Yeah. So the message that we are able to take from George Floyd's video is directly opposite of the one that the lynching spectacles intended. And that's what I'd say is a sign of progress or it's a sign of activism put to great purpose. Although I would say even that happened 100 years ago, because when Ida B. Wells goes and writes about the truth about lynching and publishes those photographs, she's publishing the photographs that are on the postcards. And whereas on the postcards, they're being taken as souvenirs of something they're exalting. When Ida B. Wells publishes them, they are meant to be a sign of something shameful and something that is so horrific that the society needs to face exactly what it's done. That activism put to great purpose is a strong uh, statement. And thank God that we've had many activists with great purpose over the ages, because certainly Ida B. Wells Barnett was ahead of her time. She was trailblazing. Her life was literally on the line for Mm -hmm. exposing Um, Mm -hmm. the type of bigotry and anti-Blackness that manifests itself through physical brutality and death uh, to the Black community. And certainly Ida B. Wells understood two of her friends were murdered because they were quote-unquote uppity, and it's because they owned a business, they owned a store, and they were lynched because of that. And she took that pain and turned it into something just beautiful in terms of making force in America at her time see its brutality and its crimes against 
black body. So just talking to you both just makes me think the more things change, the more they stay the same. She was a firm believer that every black person needed a Smith and Wesson in their life. And uh, it it wasn't just to play games. It was for protection. You know, it was real. And we know a lot of black people. I mean, our dear brother, Michael Render, a.k.a. Killer Mike, is another proponent of that just because of that, not for people to be gun owners and not responsible. But the argument is because of the threat against black bodies at all times, you cannot not have weapons to protect yourself if and when, God forbid, something of the magnitude of what black people had to endure. I mean, it's even now, but, you know, centuries ago in a more concentrated way with that kind of mob violence God forbid if something like that happened again, that black people not own weapons, not acknowledge the Second Amendment to the Constitution. All right, so there we were, cruising through the new open-air zoo, when I realized that the park was closing in like 15 minutes. Luckily, we were in my Nissan Rogue. With its powerful VC turbo engine, well, we had time to see all the animals. Whoa! <laughs> and outrun a few! Drive the Nissan Rogue. Like many of us, you might think identity theft will never happen to you. But consider this. There's a new identity theft victim every three seconds in the U.S. That's over 15 million people by the end of this year equal to the populations of New York, Los Angeles, and Chicago combined. Even worse, identity theft victims often don't even know they're victims. That's why LifeLock Identity Theft Protection alerts you to identity threats, even the ones that don't show up on a credit report, like data breaches, fraudulent bank transactions, loan and credit card applications, and crimes committed in your name. If your identity is stolen, your own dedicated LifeLock U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. LifeLock protects you in ways that you simply can't on your own. Join now and save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com news. That's LifeLock.com news to save up to 25%. Identity theft protection starts here. As we talk about the why, I kind of was thinking about what if, and Doc, this is for you. What if our previous generations of Black people had the type of technology that we have today when lynching was full frontal by mobs? And then the other what if, what if we didn't have this type of technology today? They would have said that George Floyd did something to them. He resisted arrest. He you know, and it's the things that they do now, even when we got cameras, sometimes they forget they got the body cam on when they lie about certain arrests. Yeah. Think about that. What if we had the type of technology that we have today to catch this? Because the camera is a fair arbiter. It can be. It can be right now. A hundred percent better right. than not having it at all. But what if in the early part of the 20th century, in the 19th century, yeah. this kind of technology existed? And then the what if for this moment, what if we didn't have it? That's a fascinating question. I'll start with the last part first, right? I think without this technology, what happens to George Floyd is what happens to, to most people who get killed by police who don't have cameras around, who don't, who aren't lucky enough to have an observer. They get ignored. 
you know, black testimony is often irrelevant in court. Black witness as an idea is often insubstantial in the broader conversation around criminal legal systems. And so every day we see people every single day. I mean, this is without exaggeration. We see people complaining about police brutality. Every single day we see people talking about excessive force and the police always say they didn't do it. And the police then go through investigation. They're investigated by who? By the police. (laughs) Internal affairs of the police. And the police say, guess what? After a thorough investigation of ourselves, we found out that we didn't do it. And so the video is often the best tool that we have at our disposal to at least make a different case. Now, what we also know is that even with the video, that gets you in the game. But that's it. It just gets you in the game. Walter Scott was shot in his back running away. That wasn't no slam dunk. Think about the first case. Jordan Davis, think about the first trial, right? Trayvon Martin, didn't matter what what we heard or thought, although that wasn't on video. But Tamir Rice, let me throw that in there, the 12-year-old Tamir Rice. In my city, Cleveland. That's a perfect example, right? Yeah. Because part of what goes into the video, and, and this is... Todd's point about the postcard, at least I'm going to extend Todd's point because I think it was in, it was in there. And that is that, you know, the way Ida B. Wells is using the photograph is very different than the way the white supremacists were. The same photograph, but the text, the context makes the text different. Jesse Jackson once said to me, text without context is pretext. Come on. So the context shapes this stuff. And so part of the individual's context bringing into a situation is what they think about black people. Right. The study showed black children look less innocent and older than they are. Right. So if you look at Tamir Rice and think he's 20, as you know what I mean, and, and you think that he's committing a crime, then even when you watch the video, you're going to say, well, yeah, if I saw him there, I would have did that. The officer who killed Mike Brown with Darren Wilson, when, when you listen to Darren Wilson's grand jury testimony, he's talking about Mike walking through bullets. And let me be clear. I think he's telling the truth. I think he really saw it that way. Yeah. So part of it is like the video won't save us. It can damn sure help us, but it, it won't save us. I, I'm going to take the second part of the question to Tom and put it to Tom because mm-hmm. there's nothing that, that frustrates historians more usually than giving them counterfactuals. So Todd, like, I have my own theory, but what do you think about that? Like this idea that if, if in previous eras they had the tools and technology to catch people in the act. That's a tough one. I want Before we get to that, I want to point out one other thing because Nina's question uh, about you know, what would happen if we didn't have it now can be perfectly illustrated by the story of Ahmad Arbery. Because in the early stages, cool. after Ahmad Arbery is killed, we don't have a video. And in the period when we don't have a video, the killers are exonerated in the mind of the prosecutor. The prosecutor refuses to pursue it, refuses to pursue it. So true. It's only when the video appears and when there is a campaign by those who care for justice, those two things that McMichael's father and son are brought to justice without the video, without social media, that doesn't happen. So it's like a perfect illustration there. I mean, we can talk about why there was a video, which is another peculiar aspect, because the video was shot by one of the killers, really. But Todd, but it's the same thing. And I hope you don't lose your thought. It's the same thing. It's the same parallel of folks snapping the community with their babies and all white community out posing with a lynched black body. It's the same concept. It's the same. And, And of course, that's the terrifying thing of our own time is how much progress have we made? Yeah. Now, back to the question of whether if we had had the tools back then, 
you know, I don't think the tools are work in isolation. And I think that we fortunately live in a society that maybe is prepared to learn some of the truths of these things in a way that they were not prepared to learn them in the late 19th century around Reconstruction. The desire of the white supremacist community in the late 19th century around Reconstruction was to dehumanize the black population, to make it impossible for people to trust them with power. It really came down to that. And so it wasn't enough just to prosecute someone for a criminal act. You had to actually tear apart their humanity. You had to dismember their body. You had to make them into an animal. Because if you didn't, they could still be considered as, an, as a worthy contender for power. And this was happening, as you alluded to before, Nina, with respect to the thriving black business community in Memphis when Ida B. Wells was there. So what was the point? Destroy the thriving community because it actually was a competitor to the white to white power. That's right. Black Wall Street, the same thing. Black Wall Street, the same thing. So I think I don't know what Mark will say about this. I suspect he may agree. But the I don't I think we have a combination of factors here. As Mark always says, the truth is always messy a little bit. And one of them is I think we have fortunately a society that may be ready to receive some of these truths. I think that's it. I think the problem before now we catch people in the act because p- people at least pretend to not be invested in these things in violence and in black death and, and murder and such. Right. So the police don't say, well, we would never kill an innocent person in, in the 18th century or rather the 19th century. You know, the issue wasn't catching people in the act. People were taking photos of themselves lynching people. There was just no accountability for it. So I I, I think there would be a value in, in narrating this stuff for our own experience yes. and for the people catching hell to be able to tell these stories. But I don't think the dominant argument was, to Todd's point, I don't think the dominant argument was this isn't happening. The question was, do black people deserve anything else? Come on. If we ain't human, then killing us doesn't matter. That's right. So I think the context definitely matters a lot in this. Yeah. But that dehumanization of black bodies, hence Black Lives Matter 2, T-O-O, because that's really the vibe of the movement that so many people choose to misunderstand Black Mm -hmm. Lives Matter, T-O-O. Not that other lives don't matter, but from the beginning that this country has not been willing to admit on a deep level and then comport itself as if Black Lives Matter 2 both of you, you're making me go to critical race theory. I wasn't trying to go there, but it's the same. You know, on one hand, we think we're ready to deal with some of the harsh realities of the founding of this country. But in other ways, you got 20th, 21st century folks saying, wait a minute, don't talk about anything that causes white people pain. Don't talk about the truth of the history of this country. And you can't get at it. You cannot get at the solutions if you're not really willing, and I'm talking about us as a society, and then those people we put into leadership to deal with the truth. And this stuff is not made up. It ain't conflated. It's real. But you got revisionist history, which we had in the 19th century, in the 20th century too. And now you got elected officials making it law. Florida looking at you, Ohio, so many other states where they don't even want to talk about, and it's not about critical race theory. This is about not critically looking at the history of this country in a way that puts right in our face the white supremacy that caused most of the conundrum that black people face, that poor people face in this country right now. So what say you on the notion? Because I see seeing and unseen. I'm seeing some intersection now between that and the period we're in where there's a, a powerful denial of what we know to be absolutely irrefutably true. 
Yeah. I think that the biggest connection to the book for me might be that there are moments in history where technology and media have been used to advance a particular narrative, a particular truth, you know, and I, I'm skeptical of any capital T truth. So I'm, I'm going to use truth in quotes, but in any truth claim, any assertion of something to be fact is out there. And then there are people who are going to push back against it. When birth of a nation comes out, it's asserting a truth claim. It's a piece of art. It is a masterpiece of technology. Really? It advances the genre. There ain't no doubt about that. But it's also advancing a narrative about Black humanity. It's making a truth claim about who Black people are, what our capacity is. And so if you understand us as immoral, lazy, sexual predators who are obsessed with violating the purity of white women and that somehow we are... I'm shaking my head, y'all. <laughs> not just incapable, but incompatible, right? The Black folk are incompatible with democracy. A lot of this was about denying Black people access to power and legitimizing this denial, right? So this technology, is a, it's, it's, a, it's a public claim. And so what media and technology also allowed us to do as Black folk and white folk who were allies was make a counterclaim to speak back to that, right? Sometimes using the same technology, though we didn't have access to film in the same way, but sometimes through our criticism of the film, our, our newspaper articles, our ads, our books, our speeches going around the country, all of this stuff, our representations, what was Hattie McDaniel gonna do in response to this? What was she sure, gonna say? Sure. Right, we talk about, you get into this in the book. So all of this is part of the conversation. So for me, there's always competing truth claims about race in this country. And media and technology becomes one of the primary ways where those battles get waged. The classroom is another one, but it isn't central. And in this case, interestingly enough, with critical race theory, because critical race theory is not actually being taught in school, the media is the place where we're actually having the debate about what's happening in classrooms. And so much of the stakes of critical race theory and about 1619 Project and about all this history and all this race talk, it's not actually happening in the classroom. It's happening in school boards who are responding to what Fox News tells them. It's happening in voting booths because they're voting on referenda that are animated by what they saw on Twitter or on some meme that tells them that white kids are being tortured in first grade or that they're people being, you know what I mean? Or that there's some math class in Florida that's asking people to count slaves, which also wasn't true. That's actually a, a, a false meme. So all, this is my long-winded way of saying the critical race theory debate isn't really about critical race theory. It's about our willingness to have public, open conversations, whether it's in media, whether it's in school, wherever, about race and whether we're going to be honest about naming and identifying race. And that's something that this country still isn't willing to do. But because we have Twitter and TikTok and Instagram and social media, sometimes th those who are catching hell, Derek Bell said those at the bottom of the well are forcing America to come to terms with it, even when it doesn't think it's ready. And that, for me, is critical. All right, so there we were, cruising through the new open-air zoo, when I realized that the park was closing in like 15 minutes. Luckily, we were in my Nissan Rogue. With its powerful VC turbo engine, well, we had time to see all the animals. Whoa! <laughs> and outrun a few! Drive the Nissan Rogue. Okay. I love Walker Hayes. He's amazing. He's so fun. Such a great entertainer. 
And that's why I'm so excited that JCPenney and country music singer-songwriter Walker Hayes are partnering together on a new limited-time men's collection for the everyday guy. The Walker Hayes for JCPenney collection is an upbeat playlist of instant classics with laid-back appeal and down-home vibes. As a dad of seven kids, he knows exactly what fathers want and need when it comes to their style. This collection reflects his casually cool styles with outdoor-inspired details and versatile colors. Perfect for the guy living the t-shirt life or someone wanting some fresh options that feel just as good. It's easy to wear affordable styles that celebrate the ultimate family man, along with the quality, durability, and sensibility dads appreciate. Available online Saturday, May 4th at jcp.com and in-store Thursday, May 16th, just in time for Father's Day. Limited time only. JCPenney, make it count. And I just want to remind, hello, somebody, we are here. We are here talking about the wonderful book, Seen and Unseen. Baby, you got to pick up your copy. I have the two authors here, Dr. Mark Lamont Hill and Mr. Todd Brewster. We are going deep, 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 deep into this. So get ready, baby. Get ready. Call your friends. Call your frenemies. They need to tune in. But most of all, you need to go pick up a copy of this book. Don't walk. I need you to run and get a copy of this book. You know, just man, I mean, this is this is this is really deep. I just wanted to make a point, Todd, before you jump in. Uh-huh. Dr. Hill, when you brought up Birth of a Nation, President Woodrow Wilson actually had the first viewing ever in the White House, I believe, of mm-hmm. that film. Now wrap your minds around that. Of any movie. Of any movie. Wrap your minds around that now, y'all. The president of the United States of America did a White House viewing. First movie ever to be viewed in the White House. That's some deep stuff right there. Uh, Mr. Brewster, what, go ahead and add your fire to this pot. So, you know, we take our title from, uh, uh, in part, as an inspiration from James Baldwin, the great essayist. And yeah. I'm reminded, as Mark was speaking, of Baldwin's point of view about so much of what he lived through. And his point of view was that he wanted white America to just be honest, just to admit what had happened. Yeah. And, and when I think about critical race theory, when I think about the 1619 project, when I think about what's going on in our school boards, and by the way, it's not just Southern rural school boards. It's, a, it's in Connecticut and Pennsylvania and it's, it's everywhere. And Ohio. Right? And Ohio, I'm sure. What we're seeing is a people who don't seem to be comfortable with the, the possibility of admitting mistakes of admitting that they that the society has done wrong. And, you know, if there's something central to me, to the American idea, it should be that we are reformable people, you know, that it is a nation that has progressivism built into its very structure. And for some reason, we've strayed from that, or maybe we've never quite embraced it. Maybe we've quite understood it. But the whole notion of the First Amendment, for instance, is to encourage the kind of conversation that will make this society today, better tomorrow. Yes. And so not to admit your mistakes, not to admit that they're embedded in our institutions and that we need to reconsider from a different perspective the very things that have caused the kinds of pain and suffering is not to understand the very progressive centrality of the American idea. There it is. When you think back to also the birth of a nation, what was the birth of a nation? It was an attempt to rewrite the story of the Civil War. The Civil War, more than anything else, was the commanding battle over the fundamental flaw to to the the conception of the American idea. And what 
the birth of a nation attempted to do, as the myth of the lost cause throughout the early part of the 20th century, right up to our present moment, frankly, is to reverse the outcome of that and to say, no, it was not true. We were not flawed. We did not have this as central to our core originalism. And that's the battle we're in today, just as the battle we were in 100 years ago when, when the birth of a nation first appeared. And the fact that we have tools now to be able to speak back to these distortions of history and these distortions of the common good is a remarkable thing. I mean, Mark alluded to it before. When the birth of a nation is produced, both the boys and Monroe Trotter and I believe uh, even Marcus Garvey were interested in finding ways to produce a film that would counter the birth of a nation, but they didn't have the access to capital to make it happen. Yeah. What yeah. better illustration there is there about the role of media centered in white power uh, negating black voices than that? And it is still happening in the 21st century. If you look at the people who own the large media conglomerates in this country right now, yeah. hey, for the most part, they are not black and brown. And we just saw what happened with Twitter. Um, yeah. Social media, uh, what $44 billion in the hands of, we got oligarchs in this country. We always have, we need to admit it. So, you know, there is a few pages in, and I want to, because this hits a point, I think, Todd, that you just raised. And I think it depends on the version people are reading, which page it falls on, but I'm quoting uh, from the book. It was white people who owned the cameras and white people who made the movies, white people who ran the publishing companies, edited the newspapers and funded the research and white people who wove tales that sentimentalized the Confederacy, adjusted the lessons of the Civil War to be more favorable to the South and argued that Reconstruction failed because of black people inferior by their very nature had nonetheless been entrusted with equality and authority at the expense of the interest and feelings of the defeated white majority in quote. I swear to God, I mean, more things change, the more they stay the same. Mm -hmm. Have at it. Your, your words from your book, that was the hammer and the nail right there for me. Mm. Doc, you want to jump in here on that? I'm going to leave that one to time, man. That one, okay, all right. Well, I like to think our words speak for themselves there. I think it's um, when the Supreme Court was joined by the first woman in the 1980s, I guess it was, Sandra Day O'Connor, the, the perspective that was achieved by the inclusion of a representative of more than half of the human race was remarkable, right? Law is something that we like to think is colorblind and genderblind, but it's not. Uh, human experience informs whatever we do and say and think the yes. fact that there's that there's um, was a woman on the court made all the difference in the world the fact that the power is still centered in the hands of a white majority that we have not achieved the level of diversity in terms of uh, capital that we seek to achieve in our society that that we have not achieved it even as is representative in, in our society means that we have not created a system that serves the diverse population and this example of Twitter is compelling. Mark and I were asked about it yesterday. I, I haven't fully digested all that I think about it, but I'm, we're both, I think, very concerned about what that means. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I believe that we all should be concerned about what that means. 
Doc, you want to jump in here? Do you believe that Black people can better control our images and our narrative compared to the 20th century, for example? Are we better positioned sure. even though we might not be where we want to be? Yeah, I think that you what you just said is exactly the answer. Right? We certainly can do more. Black people have always attempted to wrest control of their narrative from those who were dominating and oppressing us. When Frederick Douglass writes, you know, his biography, one of multiple that he would write, or when Phyllis Wheatley writes poems on various subjects, religious and moral, or Olola Quiano writes narrative of the life of Gustavus Vassa, or Olola Quiano of Gustavus Vassa written by himself. All of these narratives were attempts to say, here's our actual story. And not only are we going to tell the truth about our actual journeys and stories, but we're also going to tell the truth about our capacity to tell our own truth and journeys. That's why they had to say written by himself, written by herself, because people thought black yeah. folk didn't have the capacity. Think about the trials of Phyllis Wheatley, for example. Sure. So, so when this is all happening, we are always trying to find a way to tell our story. Frederick Douglass was trying to invent and reinvent and redefine and define himself constantly through his writing, but also through the photograph. Again, another piece of technology that he was able to use to tell a story, right? What happens on the Pettus Bridge isn't just a political tactic, although it's one of the most brilliant political tactics of the 20th century. It's also an, it's an attempt to assert a narrative about Black humanity, right? That we are people, that we are human beings who are being treated like dogs. Yeah, worse than. Absolutely. And so for me, it's not new for Black folk to use the media, to use the technology to tell our story. Ebony and Jet Magazine, the Johnson Family Publishing, Black Enterprise, yeah. these were media spaces that were used to assert and expand the understanding of who and what we were. And so when we enter this moment, we don't just have Cliff Huxtable or, or notice I said Cliff Huxtable, not the, not the real man, but the character. We don't just have Cliff Huxtable to help America understand what's possible for Black life and Black family more. We don't just have the magazines. We don't just have the representations. We also are now expanding that through film. We're expanding that through social media. We're expanding our ability to tell our own story, to articulate our own truths, to represent our own selves. All of it is growing. And so I'm encouraged. I'm optimistic. I'm not optimistic, but I'm, I'm hopeful that we will get somewhere. But to the last part of what you said, we still got a long way to go. Yeah. America is freer because of Black Twitter. Mm. There are police officers who are no longer killing us because of Black Twitter. There are stories of Black girls like Breonna Taylor and Sandra Bland and Mia Hall and Renisha McBride that are being told because of Black Twitter. R. Kelly might be off the street because of Black Twitter. Sure. So Black Twitter goes a long way. But Black Twitter is also not owned by Black people. That's it. Everybody on Twitter is, is, is susceptible to the forces of these oligarchic forces that you're talking about. Yeah. And the idea that we could live in a world where somebody will say this quasi public sphere, I don't like it, so I'm going to buy it and then make it the way I want is very, very dangerous to me. But it's particularly dangerous to black folk. Right. The same black folk that make TikTok pop. Right. People making money off of it. But it's black dancers that's making that's animating the money from it. So we're in these spaces and our voices are in these spaces and we are telling our own stories, but we're still susceptible to the whims of power until we own it ourselves. Yeah. And I'm not suggesting black capitalism. I'm not suggesting that Black folk, that we develop a Black Elon Musk. God forbid. I want to live in a world where the Bezos and the Elon Musk don't, don't have this kind of power, regardless of what color they That's come right. in. But what I do want is to see media that is owned by the people who are being represented by it. 
That's what I'd love to see. I'd love to see the 21st century version of Jet or Black Digest or Black Enterprise, but in this new media sphere to go along with the other stuff. And it makes me think about the Black News Channel that just... Yeah, RIP. Just just another example. And, and while we're talking about who, you know, who owns the media, it's not just Elon Musk, even though his purchase for forty four billion dollars have us all paying attention to this. But Jeff Bezos, he owns the Washington Post. You got John Henry and he owns the Boston Globe. Sheldon Addison, we know the Las Vegas Review Journal, uh, Lorraine Powell Jobs, the Atlantic, Mark Benoff. Time magazine, and I could go on and on. Even the media, so I'm talking about print right now, but even the TV media is owned by a very narrow few who control and own all of these outlets that we depend upon. It's just like even the production of food. You know, who yep. owns the production of food? And we would be asked out, as my grandmother used to say, quoting grandma here, if something were to happen and these people automatically decided who's worthy and who is not. In many ways, they do decide who's worthy and who is not. Uh, one of the reasons why we don't have universal health care or that we pay more for our prescription drugs than any other industrialized nation does in fact have a lot to do with the oligarchic forces that control the political sphere by which we operate. And so to me, the whole notion of seen and unseen, there is so much intersectionality between your book, the book that you both have written and all of the things that we're talking about that are happening in our time. But what does give me great hope and hope is an action word and encouragement is that just because that is the reality today, some of the things that we're talking about, injustice does not have to be the reality tomorrow if we are willing to act. So I, I thank you both for writing your book, Seen and Unseen. Listen to me. Hello, somebody. Folks, y'all need to go out and get this book. Go ahead and gift it to somebody too. If you want to, you go ahead and do I'm that. I'm sure they wouldn't be mad about it. If you are a professor in a classroom, go on and use this book to supplement the course. Hello, I'm talking from experience. Uh, I want you to, as we kind of wrap this thing up to uh, give me your thoughts, weigh in on this quote that I am about to speak into the universe. Our show is driven by a lot of quotes. So the Hello Somebody family knows that we don't end the show without at least getting a quote or two in. But this comes from David Foster Wallace. And the quote is, the truth will set you free, but not until it is finished with you. End quote. Wow. Mm. Mm. That's a powerful quote. That's Seen a powerful quote. Mm. We're going to get free. Yeah. And, and God talked about this with the Baldwin piece of it. You know, we got to confront this stuff yeah. to be released from it. We got to be committed to confronting it. But it's not enough to just confront it. It's not enough to just acknowledge it, rather. You got to wrestle with it. Come on. You got to do something with it. The truth ain't going to be finished with us. If you're talking about racial justice in America, the truth ain't going to be done with us. It's not enough to just say, yo, you know what? Racism exists. White people have privilege or or the black folk are systemically denied access to stuff. That's, that's, the, that's almost the easy part. Yeah. You know, the truth won't be done with us until we fight for something different. That's the work that's in front of us. There it is. You know, it's interesting. David Foster Wallace is an interesting writer. I mean, a very creative brain at work there. Um, I'm not sure that it is a part of the human condition to constantly rest with what the truth is. As we were talking before, I just want to go back to Frederick Douglass for a moment, because I think one of the more compelling scenes for me in the book is the idea of Frederick Douglass as having his picture taken so many times. And part of the reason was to 
reinforce to audiences that he was a human being. Yeah. And wherever he would go and he would stand and he would speak with the power of the most articulate advocates for abolition, William Lloyd Garrison, others had nothing on Frederick Douglass, a man who had, was born into slavery, who learned the language by eavesdropping on the white master's children's lessons. Yeah. Now, when he appears before audiences, these are sympathetic audiences. What do they want to know? They don't want to know his ideas about abolition. They want to know what it was like to be a slave. Mm. They want to know the dehumanizing part rather than the humanizing part. Now, both were truths. He was being dehumanized in the act of slavery, right? But the truth that he wanted people to see was that he was a human being with dignity. And that seems to me to be the truth. We, we, have, you know, we have choices of truths throughout our life. I mean, this, in this sense, our modern media has brought this very clearly to our attention. What we see is in part what we choose to see. And sometimes that means we ignore things that are important. And sometimes that means that we reinforce things that are in front of us. And I think it's important that we wrestle with it the way that I think David Foster Wallace was alluding to in a way that is constructive, productive, way that, that preserves the dignity of all human beings. Oh, we hello somebody. Can we get some hello somebody's on that? I have been edified today. I don't know about y'all, but I've been edified. I want to thank you, Mr. Todd Brewster and Dr. Mark Lamont Hill. Thank you both for joining. Hello, somebody. Where can folks find the both of you and where or where can they pick up a copy of this fantastic illustrative truth talking in your face book y'all can find me on social media mark lamont hill on all platforms the book you can get anywhere where you buy your books but of course i always like when people buy from independent bookstores and i love when people buy from my own bookstore uncle bobby's coffee and books uh which we're online unclebobbies.com that's uncle b-o-b-b-i-e-s but honestly i want you to support any store that's doing good work and I want y'all to support the books. So I don't care where y'all get it from, long as y'all get it. And I, I, I also believe in, you know, the, the, a book is a thing. It's a, it's a beautiful thing. It's an object. It's a piece of art. It's something to hold, something to caress, something to put on your shelf and be proud of, you know. So yeah. I, I also support, support independent bookstores and, and, and encourage you to, to, I mean, independent bookstores are, are not only bookstores, they're, they're fixtures in communities. They really make a big, big contribution. And uh, they're, they're centers for dialogue, for constructive conversation, and for uh, enjoying the great world of art that comes with literature. So um, I encourage you to, to, to purchase your book there. But as Mark says, any way you find it, we hope you'll find that there's pieces of wisdom in it and that you um, feel rewarded by your reading. Amen. Gifted to somebody. Mother's Day is coming up. Mamas, don't hurt me now. Buy, buy mama the flowers and the candy and just go on and gift mama the book. Seen and unseen too. Why not just do it all? Or, or whatever you're going to get it, but just tuck that book in there too. So, man, this has been absolutely exhilarating. I just want to thank you both. You are a gift to the world and thank you both for using your gifts to edify, to lift, and to speak a certain type of truth that will make us all better if we are ready, willing, and able to absorb this thing. You have been listening to Hello Somebody. We know that everybody is somebody. Cannot wait for you to be back with us next week.
is coming, the pain is numbing. Try to shoot for the stars if you gon' aim for something. Embrace the love for your brother and sister. Unity's the missing brush, we need to puzzle this picture. Let's paint it up, frame it up, for the world to see. Hang the hatred up. Enough is enough, is enough, making changes on us. In Turner, her voice is the truth, her wise words inspire the youth to keep their eyes on the roof. It's the end, never give up, keep conquering goals. To the eye, intelligence, silver, wisdom is gold. Back to the end, now is your time, stay firm, don't fold. To the A, all you need is the three bones, that's what Granny said. Now I'ma make sure these words from Granny spread. For all of here, just give her your ear. She can take you to the promised land, I swear. World peace is what they fear. From Queens to Cleveland, Ohio, we here. Famous. Somebody is a production of iHeartRadio and the Black Effect Network. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Are you still searching for your perfect place to call home? Well, now is the time to buy at Fisher Homes. If you're looking to move in before the end of 2024, May could be your last opportunity to start building your dream home and close before the year's end. If you're hoping to move in even sooner, Fisher Homes also has homes that are move-in ready and waiting for you, where you can start enjoying the benefits of homeownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with a new home advisor today at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Right here, right now. Find your beautiful new floor at Right Rug Flooring. Choose from thousands of in-stock styles ready for next day installation and all backed by the right price guarantee. Visit rightrug.com. That's R-I-T-E-R-U-G.com today to schedule a free in-home estimate or to find a location near you. 24-month financing is available with approved credit. For 90 years, we've been right here, right now. Right Rug Flooring.